It's December, and so that means obviously Christmas time is upon us. And with Christmas time comes the obligatory Christmas sermon series that we start every year. Uh, and I have a confession to make to you this morning. I don't really like writing Christmas sermons. And it's not because I don't enjoy Christmas or think that it's important. It's an incredibly important holiday in our faith. It's just really hard. Um, you can only tell the story so many times before it starts to get a little repetitive. And I was thinking about it this week. I've been preaching for 10 years, and so every year is a four- to six-week sermon series, and then you've got the Christmas Eve message in there also. So I've written somewhere between 50 and 70 different Christmas messages in my career so far. Like, that's a lot, about three and a half chapters in the Bible. Like, just think about that. Do you think you could write 50 to 70 different messages on three and a half chapters of the Bible? Me neither. So please don't go back and listen to past Christmas series because there's a lot of recycled material in there. And so I started thinking about it and I thought, you know what, this year I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to write a, a typical Christmas series. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about his coming but I'm not even going to try to fit a lot of the tri traditional, typical Christmas things and feelings and ideas into it. Instead, we're just going to look at the gospel. We're going to start at the beginning. We're going to go forward and, and see what it has to say to us. And some people may be disappointed in that. And I understand that because sometimes we have certain expectations for Christmas time and the Christmas season. And when those expectations go unmet, it can be a little disappointing. But sometimes, and here's this is a really important lesson, sometimes what we expect isn't necessarily what fulfills. And that's actually a pretty prominent theme that runs throughout the gospel of Jesus, particularly here at the outset of Matthew's version of that story, Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're kicking off a sermon series today called A Year-ish with Jesus. It was going to be a year with Jesus, but Matthew's a really long gospel, and so I can't fit it into a year. So it's a year-ish with Jesus. And we're going to start at the beginning here, Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open that up. Feel free to follow along on the screen behind if you don't have your Bible with you, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. However, for this series, I would highly encourage you to bring a physical Bible with you, to open it up, to be in a physical word as we engage the person of Jesus. Take some notes because there's just something that happens when we look at the text through a screen. We can hear the words, we can hear the message, but there's something about having a physical Bible there that's just different. And I would encourage you to, to experience that. If you don't have a Bible, we'll happily get one for you. So Matthew chapter 1, let's dive into our text this morning, see what it has to say before we start picking it apart. Starting in verse 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus. This is everybody's favorite part of the gospel, by the way, is this big list of names. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and from that point you can see there's a, a big long list of names that goes on for several verses that so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who is the father of so-and-so, and there's a lot of significance to this list and why it lists the names that it does and how it's structured, and unfortunately we don't have time to get into that this morning, so let's skip down to verse 17. It says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. 
And so the summary of this list is that there are these different sections of Israel's history. There's three of them. Each of them conveniently features 14 generations that separate one chapter to the next, and it's all just very symmetrical and kind of folds out very nice and and cohesive like that. The problem is that that's not exactly true. Not in the strictest, most literal sense that we might expect, anyway. And that's maybe the first place where this book is going to challenge our expectations of Jesus and what it means to follow him. You see, when Matthew writes this, he's not writing to our specific expectations in the 21st century. When you and I come across a piece of literature, a historical piece of literature, we come to it with expectations. We have this idea that it should be very true in a strict literal sense, that it should be factual, just the facts, that it should be accurate, that it should spare no detail and go to every extent to tell us every last minute uh, bit of information about this that it can, that it needs to be very, very literal. That's not how ancient people recorded history, and that wasn't their purposes for history. We can see that when we compare this genealogy in Matthew to the genealogy in Luke, for instance. Luke also has a list of names of Jesus' lineage. And there are some places where this is very similar, these two lists, but there are also some places where they, they diverge from one another. There's differences and discrepancies. And some people have over the years explained, well, Matthew's trying to give us the lineage of Jesus through Joseph, and Luke is trying to give us the lineage of Jesus through Mary, his mother. The problem is that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. So if we're looking at this from like a strict literal kind of history, his lineage is irrelevant to all of this, and Matthew's just wasting our time. That's probably not what's happening, though. More likely, Matthew is following conventions of his first century world where history wasn't about giving just the facts, but it was about what does history have to teach us? What does history have to say about this specific person or about this event or about this group of people? History had a purpose beyond informing. It was to shape us and mold us, which some might argue is a far more beneficial form of historiography. And if we look at Matthew's lineage through that lens, we realize there's a reason he records this list of names the way that he does. He has something he wants to tell us about Jesus. In fact, he's already told us what that is in verse 1. This Jesus, he is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this list of names is really just the evidence and the proof to his first century audience that Jesus is, in fact, all of these things. And that's where we start to dig into this list. And we ask the question, who are these people? And what story does their list of names tell us? What's the message that, that Jesus is this son of David, son of Abraham? Why does that matter to them? And maybe more importantly, why does that matter to us today? That's the question that we're going to be wrestling with as we really dig into this. And what we're going to find is that Jesus, Matthew's trying to inform, really speaks to the deep longings of our being. He's saying that message to his first century audience who would have originally read this, but that is also true for ourselves today, as we're going to see in a little bit. Let's start with the first century audience so we can understand the whole message that Matthew's trying to get across here. Jesus speaks to our deep longings. Specifically, he's trying to convey to people that Jesus speaks to these deep longings to see God's plan and purposes unfold. They were longing to see this in first century Palestine. And there is a story 
of longing. If we were to look at the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament, we can see it's a very long story. In fact, there's a theologian named N.T. Wright. He writes a book called Simply Jesus, great resource if you want to read it. In that, he calls the history of Israel the long story. And it's a concept that you and I might have a little trouble resonating with because ours, as far as our nation goes, is not a very long story, really. Our nation is about 250, a little less than 250 years old. There are houses in Europe that people live in that are older than our entire nation, just to put that into perspective. We're a relatively young nation. Well, by the time Jesus set foot on the scene in Israel, their story was about 2,000 years old at that point. That's a way longer story, which means that there's 10 times the history, there's 10 times the ups and the downs, and particularly to the audience that Matthew is writing to, there's 10 times the yearning and the longing to see what is God going to do next. It's a story that begins with the first name in this list, if you want to revisit verse 2 with me. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Abraham, if you're not familiar, he was the progenitor, he was the beginning point of Israel's lineage. It shows up in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to this man named Abraham, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, I will be your God. If you will worship me, I will bless you immensely and the whole world will be blessed through you. That's a pretty big promise because people in the world, even in Abraham's time, they could look around and see that the world was in need of some serious blessing. Things were noticeably and recognizably off. Things like oppression and injustice, things like, like uh, uh, just destruction and disrespect for people's being and existence. These things that just kind of hindered humanity and civilization just hung in the air and people experienced them on a daily basis. And they recognized that all of this mess was really a, a, a symptom of a deeper issue, this thing called sin, where fellowship with God had been broken because humanity rejected him. They read the same stories in the book of Genesis that we do about creation and the Garden of Eden and the serpent and that first sin. So they shared our recognition that there are things in the world that are recognizably off and sin is at the heart of it. But this promise made to Abraham, this was going to be a big step forward, they recognized that God was going to do something pretty big in the world, and for some reason, somehow, they were going to be a part of it. That's where Israel's history was born. That's the identity that they cultivated from this story. God is going to be at work in us as his people to do something big and move our story forward. And that theme of God at work in his people, that continues as we keep working through this list. Abraham had a son named Isaac. But it wasn't like a traditional kind of, you know, being in our 20s, 30s, we had a child. Abraham was 99. His wife Sarah was 89 when they had that child. That's not a natural, normal thing. Obviously, God was at work in his people in a pretty big way there to move the story forward. Isaac would have a son named Jacob, and Jacob was a bit of a shyster, if we're going to be honest. He was a bit of an underhanded guy. But through his life, God led him away into this distant land to find a bride, and he humbled Jacob in immense ways. He even manifested himself and wrestled with Jacob to teach a pretty profound lesson. And it's through this work of God in Jacob's life that he returns back to his homeland, back to his brother whom he had wronged, and that family can be reconciled. God was at work to move the story forward in a pretty powerful way. 
And then we read about Jacob's son, Judah, and his brothers. He had 12 brothers, 11 brothers in all. They would become the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes. Judah and his brothers, they would be forced to take up refuge in the land of Egypt because there was this huge famine that swept through the region and threatened to starve everybody. But they happened to come into Egypt at just the right time when their brother, whom they had years earlier sold into slavery, happened to sit on the throne of Egypt as the second most powerful man in the entire region. And through that act and through that work, God both humbled the brothers and Joseph, the one that had been sold, reconciled them, brought them together, and the whole family was saved. God was at work in that story and in his people in a pretty powerful way, moving the whole narrative forward. And they would stay in Egypt for 400 years, but they would grow and they'd become so numerous that the Pharaoh of Egypt really became insecure and threatened by them and thought, what if they overtake us? And so he enslaved Israel for 400 years. And for 400 years, these people of God, they lived under the thumb of a tyrant. And they asked the question, what is God going to do? How is he going to be at work in his people? How is he going to move the story forward? But they kept faith and confidence that somehow, some way, God would work. And he did. He liberated his people. If you've read the book of Exodus, and he led them across dry land when he parted the Red Sea, and they started their way into the promised land. And that's where this list of names picks up in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. In the days of this man Salmon that we read about, the Israelites were led into this promised land, this area that God said to Abraham years and years earlier, I'm going to give this to you. And they were brought in and they were told to overtake armies and nations that were far more numerous than them and far more powerful from them. And to overtake cities like Jericho with its high walls that reached to the sky. But God said, I will be with you and I will work through you. And so they marched around the city for seven days. And then on the seventh march, they blew their trumpets and the walls miraculously fell. And the Israelites rushed in and took the city by the sword. This happened again and again and again. The Israelites took over this promised land because God was at work in his people in the days of Salmon. And their story was moving forward. But then Salmon had some sons. He had Boaz, whose son was Obed. And in their, day, their days, Israel became a little lax in their faith. They started to follow after false gods and idols. And as a result, and as discipline, they fell under the authority of oppressors and tyrants once again. But they would cry out to God, and in his mercy, God would be at work in his people, and he would raise up a savior, a judge, to deliver the people from oppression. This happened again and again and again. And these judges, if you've ever read through the book of Judges, each one was a little less impressive than the last as far as their faithfulness went. And eventually it even came to the point where they no longer needed a judge. What the people needed was a king. And not just any king. They needed a God-ordained king. A king that would lead them well. A king that would lead them in faithfulness and righteousness and would bring them prosperity and security. They needed King David. And God raised him up, and through him, he led this great story of Israel to its height. The story was moving forward. There was prosperity and security. The boundaries were expanding. There's peace in the land. The people were faithful to the Lord. Things looked like they could not be better. God was surely at work in his people. But you probably notice we're only halfway through the list. And that after David, the list continues for quite some time. And, and we'll get into some of those names. But just a real quick glance, we can see names like Rehoboam, 
Manasseh. We see mention of this land called Babylon. And we're reminded that not only does Israel's long story continue moving forward, but it continues to move in a perpetually downward trajectory. You see, the people would become unfaithful to the Lord. Their kings would betray them and lead them astray, and eventually the whole nation would be conquered, exported into exile, taken as captives once again to live under the thumb of a tyrant in a distant land called Babylon. And they would stay there for 70 years. After Babylon, well, there would be a new tyrant named Persia. And after Persia, there would be a new tyrant named Greece. And after Greece, there would be a new tyrant, the worst of all, named Rome. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people would live under the oppression of these rulers and these kingdoms, all the while longing for God to move his plan forward, to unfurl his purposes and to move their story forward, to work in them some way, so that their long story could continue, that somehow they and the whole world would be blessed through them. There was a yearning by the time the first century A.D. got here to see what in the world is God going to do? How is he going to rescue us from this? How is he going to bless us and everyone else through this? Because right now we feel so crushed and pitiful and pathetic, it isn't even funny. There was longing in the people to see the story progress. For many, they thought that that meant the Messiah would come and move the story forward. This God-ordained king like David. And that's the second component to all of this. Not only did they yearn and expect that God was going to do something big to move the story forward, they yearned to be led into this future and to be led well. And Matthew wants his people to understand Jesus speaks to this longing to be led well. Let's look back at that list for a minute. Let's get a sense of why they might feel this way. Let's look back at David. David was this king by which all other kings would be measured. This great and glorious leader. But we're reminded in the mention of David that he was no angel. He had the son named Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's the only person in this list that is named without being named. Because to mention her name, Bathsheba, recounts all of the tragedy of David's life. He was the one that sought her and had an adulterous affair with her. He was the one, once she became pregnant, who oversaw the death of her husband. David sullied his name and led his people astray through his sin. And it hurts to see your leaders fail you that way. But it certainly wouldn't be the last time that Israel's leaders betrayed them. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 7. It says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Solomon, he was a, a great king for a while, a very wise man. He brought immense prosperity and wealth into Israel. And he brought immense idolatry and unfaithfulness into the nation as well. In fact, under him, idolatry became government-sponsored and endorsed. He used tithes and offerings from his people to build temples to the Baals and the Asherah, these gods of the Canaanites. He led his people astray, and things would never be the same after him. His son Rehoboam would become king, and not only did Rehoboam continue the idolatry, he also led to a national divorce 
in which civil war broke out amongst the tribes of Israel. And in the north, uh, ten of the kingdoms went and became the nation of Israel. And in the south, two tribes remained and became the kingdom of Judah. Never again would they be reconciled in one. Under the days of his son, Abijah, things continued idolatrously. The war continued. People continued to die. Under Asa, his son, things got a little better. Asa at least didn't continue the idolatry. He was no David. He had his own faults and problems. You can go read his story in the book of 2 Kings. But he was okay. And in fact, that, that tone of mediocrity would continue throughout most of Judah's history. Israel in the north, they never had a faithful king. In the south, they had some mediocre kings at best. But it still stoked to these fires of longing. Things were still recognizably off, and they yearned to see the story move forward somehow. But even the mediocrity would eventually end and give way to failure. Look at verse sorry, 10. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Hezekiah was a good king. It looked like he was going to be the next David, and then he died. And then his son Manasseh took the throne, and boy, was Manasseh just the worst. And I don't mean that lightly. Manasseh stoked the fires of idolatry to a whole new level. We read that he passed his son through the fire, or offered his son to the fire. And we're not entirely clear what that means, but that phrase is oftentimes used of child sacrifice and pagan rituals. He may have sacrificed one of his own kids. He certainly murdered droves of innocent people in the streets because it served his agenda and moved his, his plans forward. Manasseh was a despicable king. He was supposed to be the shepherd of Israel. Instead, he was a butcher. His son didn't do a whole lot better. Amon took the throne. He led the nation deeper into idolatry. We get to Josiah, and Josiah, oh man, it looked like things were going to get a little better, and then he died, and his son Jeconiah and his brothers took over, and it turned into Game of Thrones. I'm going to kill you so I can get the throne. No, I'm going to kill you so I can get the throne. And there was assassinations, and there were murders, and the average tenure of a king ranged anywhere from two years to six months. And then finally, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon saw his opportunity. And he swept in, and he sacked the city, and he tore the temple of God down brick from brick. He exported the people off to a distant land where they would live as strangers and foreigners, without a nation, without a temple, and without an identity. And the leaders of Israel let it happen. At one time, they even invited Babylon into their borders to come look and to take a th take, just take a glance at our treasury and see how things are going around here. We're doing great. And of course, the people from Babylon are, uh-huh, yeah, that looks good. We'll just write down your defenses here and how much gold you have. They sold them out. And again, this would continue. They would live under Babylon for 70 years. Even when the Persians became in power, they let the Israelites go back to the land and rebuild their temple, but they didn't have a king. They lived under the thumb of governors. And after the Persians, they lived under an emperor named Alexander. And after Alexander, they lived under uh, the, the Maccabees, a pseudo-kingdom for a while. And then the Romans would come to power, and they would live under a governor there was a king of the Jews that the Romans had put in place. He was a puppet king named Herod. He was called king of the Jews by everybody except the Jews because they absolutely despised him. 
Can you imagine being a people where your own leaders had sold you out, where they worked for their own good and their own benefit? Can you imagine that you have to live under the authority of these officials, even though it doesn't benefit you at all? Can you imagine living in a place like that at times? The people of Israel longed for something more. They longed to be led. They longed to be guarded and protected and prospered by somebody that actually cared, a shepherd, a king, a Messiah. That's what they longed for. And so you have these two yearnings deep in their hearts, one to see what is God going to do next. The other, will somebody lead us forward into this future and lead us well? And these two streams had always lived side by side but never really crossed to the explosive way that they had until the first century A.D., And it's at this point where frustrations had reached their highest and expectations had reached their highest and yearnings had reached their highest. And there were groups of people that that broke off and said, well, we're going to lead the kingdom this way and we're going to make a kingdom this way and we're going to be a group of assassins that kill the Romans. That didn't work out real well. And there were other people that said, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm the Messiah. And every one of them failed, leaving the people discouraged and disillusioned and longing even more. And it's at this bleeding edge of all these expectations that this guy named Jesus of Nazareth sets foot on the scene. And Matthew is writing to these ancient Jewish people, yearning for them to understand this guy Jesus is the answer to your longings. You want to see what God is going to do next. You want to see how the story is going to move forward. He is the answer. You want somebody to lead you. You want a king that's going to reign in righteousness like David. He is the answer. He is the answer to your deep longings, even if he didn't look like you expected. You see, these Israelite people, they had a certain expectation. But sometimes what we expect isn't always what fulfills us. And that message that Matthew wants to share with those people, he also wants to share with us today. Because Jesus is still the answer to our deep longings. Things change over history and over time, but people often do not. You and I have the same kind of deep longings that they had 2,000 years ago. Who among us has looked at what's happening in our world today and went, yeah, this is fine. Things are good. No, we look around, we turn on the news, we see what's happening in our neighborhoods, we see what's happening in our nation, and we say, something's off. Something is recognizably off because things are not just all the time. Things are not fair all the time. Things are not as they ought to be. Just this week, I was having a conversation with somebody, their family's experiencing a a kind of a health crisis. And it's really difficult for their, uh, their elder parents. They, they've worked hard their whole lives. They've worked honest jobs. They've done what they're supposed to do. They've paid the bills. They've put a little bit back for savings so that they could enjoy a humble retirement to close out their years. But one health issue has put all of that in jeopardy. And they're at the point where maybe they might lose the house and all of their plans and all of their dreams just comes crashing down because of one thing that was completely out of their hands, even though they've done everything they're supposed to do. How is that fair? And how is that okay and right? Or you can just think back through the last two years and the things that we've experienced. We've had a global pandemic, sure, but we had a lot of societal unrest and rioting. We've had political upheaval and vitriol. 
We've had an economy that has crashed and is still on its way down. We've got the threat of global war. Who among us looks around and says, this is how it ought to be? Nobody. We want to see what's next. We want God to work in a pretty big way and move this story forward to deal with the mess and make things right. That's a yearning that all of us have. You think back to the year 2020 and you think back to the frustrations and the stifling feelings that you experienced. I heard more than a few people say, I just wish God was in charge. Because it was a frustrating and disillusioning season. And that might be the season that brings us closest to understanding how these people in the first century felt every single day for decades and centuries. It was this pessimism that just hung over the air. They longed, just as you and I long today, for something better in store up ahead. And what we want is somebody to lead us well into that future, right? We want somebody that will work on our behalf, that will care about us, that will be upstanding and righteous. But instead, I don't want to be too mean or unfair, but we'll just say that's often not what we find in our leaders. And it's discouraging and frustrating. And we want somebody that will lead us well. We have expectations and longings. And oftentimes we expect these longings to be met in particular ways. We expect that maybe there will be some new legislation that will fix our society and move things forward. Or there will be some new politician or leader that will fix things and and move things forward in a good way and will lead well. And then when those things inevitably don't materialize, we become frustrated and we say, well, maybe this new legislation or this new leader will pull the trick and, and pull the rabbit out of the hat and make things happen. We keep looking to the same expected answers all the time always experiencing the same disillusions and frustrations, and yet we still expect that maybe things will be different next time. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and yet expecting a different result? Here's Matthew's message to us today. Stop looking to the typical explanations and expectations for what's going to fulfill your longings because God has already actually given you an answer in Jesus even if it's not the answer you expected. Oftentimes we don't expect Jesus to be the answer to my longings for God's plan and moving the story forward or or this answer for somebody to lead us well. And maybe that's because just like the first century people Matthew's writing to, our expectations of Jesus are often off or misguided. When we look at the first century, they had a lot of expectations for who the Messiah was going to be. He's going to be a king, right? So he's going to come in with an army, and he's going to sit on a throne, and he's going to make war, and he's going to drive the Romans out of Israel, and we're going to be this political nation state, and we're going to rule and power and prosperity, and that's what God's going to do. That's what we expect from this Messiah. And when Jesus said, I'm not really interested in being that kind of a king, they killed him. They nailed him to a cross. The temptation for us oftentimes resides on the other end of the spectrum. We oftentimes see Jesus as this mere religious figure in our lives. We expect Jesus to hear our prayers, to encourage us, to forgive our sins, to get us into heaven. But I think it's interesting when you look at what Matthew writes and how he introduces Jesus to these people There's not really a lot of religious language. 
It says, this is Jesus, the Messiah. Is a God-anointed person? Yes, but he's anointed for a purpose, to be a king. He says he's the son of David. That's not a religious term at all. He came to be a ruler, an authority, a king over a kingdom. He's the son of Abraham. And there's religious overtones to that, but more than anything, he is the fulfillment of a covenant, a promise that God made to bless the earth through his people. Jesus is all of those things I mentioned, a savior, a deliverer, a forgiver of sins, the one that grants us eternal life, but he is no mere religious figure. See, the temptation for the Jewish people when Jesus neglected to be the king they expected was to put him on the cross. The temptation for us is to leave him there and forget that he's a king at all. That he didn't come just to rule our Sundays, but that he came to rule our whole lives. Not just to fulfill our longings for eternity, to fulfill longings today in this world and change things today in this world. He is a king in every sense of the word. He came to claim territory and to establish a kingdom. It's a kingdom of people of filled with hearts and minds that are changed. It's a kingdom that has its own priorities and has its own agenda and has its own culture. He came to, to wage war against enemies. It wasn't emperors or rulers or nation states. It's far more sinister powers of sin and Satan and death. Things actually responsible for the mess and the offness that we all sense. He came to claim territory and expand his borders. Not through sword and shield, but through claiming hearts and minds of you and I, of our friends, of our family, of our neighbors, to incorporate people into his nation, into his church, into his kingdom, and through that, move this grand story of God's forward. Through that, to lead people forward into a great and glorious future that God has in store. Through that, to be a blessing. Not just on Sunday, but every day as we go out into this world and disseminate this good news and this joy and this differentness that God has instilled in his people. He is a king in every sense of the word. But too often we come to expect too little from Jesus and relegate him merely to a religious figure. When Matthew's message from the get-go is this, he's not just Lord of Sunday. He came here to fulfill the deep longings of your soul to see what's in store what is next and to be led well into that future so as the advent season comes upon us and as we are really gearing up and heading into this year-long journey with Jesus I want us to wrestle with this particular question who is Jesus to you who is he is he merely this religious figure that we pray to and believe in? Or is he the Lord God made manifest before us that's come to rule our lives? Is he just a religious savior or is he the Lord of everything I am? That's an important question. Because Jesus came to be a king, not in a metaphorical sense, in a very real sense. And if we are open to that, to experiencing what it means to follow him and be a part of his kingdom. To understand that he did come to advance an agenda to take captives, to claim territory, to claim hearts and minds, and to establish rule. If we really open ourselves up to that, 
He might just change your whole world in ways you never expected. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and the challenge of who he is. He is, he is our Savior. He does forgive sin. He does claim our religious devotion. But Father, he claims so much more than that. He is shaping our hearts and our minds and our very lives to be different, to be a kingdom of priests in a world that is off. And it is through his work that you move this story forward and bring it closer to its conclusion. It's through him that you lead us and lead us well. And so I pray over the coming days and weeks and months, you would reveal to us who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in this way. To be captured and enthralled by his message. To pledge ourselves to him and be ruled by him with gentleness and mercy and compassion. And I pray that you would use us to go into this world and to, to share the good news of this kingdom and its king. That he might reign over not just us, but our friends, our families, our neighbors, our communities. That we might understand this great story that God's moving forward and that we would be led well into that future. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.